Chapter Eleven of the Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Frozen Pirate by W. Clark Russell. Chapter Eleven. I MAKE FURTHER DISCOVERIES So long as I moved about and worked, I did not feel the cold. But if I stood or sat for a couple of minutes, I felt the nip of it in my very marrow. Yet, fierce as the cold was here, it was impossible it could be comparable with the rigors of the parts in which this schooner had originally got locked up in the ice. No doubt, if I died on deck, my body would be frozen as stiff as the figure on the rocks. But though it was very conceivable that I might perish of cold in the cabin by sitting still, I was sure the temperature below had not the severity to stonify me to the granite of the men at the table. Still, though a greater degree of cold, cold as killing as if the world had fallen sunless, did unquestionably exist in those latitudes whence this ice with the schooner in its hug had floated, it was so bitterly bleak in this interior that twas scarcely imaginable it could be colder elsewhere. And as I rose from the cask, shuddering to the heart with a frosty motionless atmosphere, my mind naturally went to the consideration of a fire by which I might sit and toast myself. I put a bunch of candles in my pocket, but they were as hard as a parcel of marlin spikes, and took the lantern into the passage and inspected the next room. Here was a cot hung up by hooks, and a large black chest stood in cleats upon the deck. Some clothes dangled from pins in the bulkhead, and upon the kind of tray, fixed upon short legs and serving as a shelf, were a miscellaneous bundle of boots, laced waistcoats, three-corner hats, a couple of swords, three or four pistols, and other objects not very readily distinguishable by the candlelight. There was a port, which I tried to open, but found it so hard frozen I should need a handspike to start it. There were three cabins besides this, the last cabin, that is the one in the stern, being the biggest of the lot. Each had its own cot, and each also had its own special muddle and litter of boxes, clothes, firearms, swords, and the like. Indeed, by this time I was beginning to see how it was. The suspicion that the watches and jewelry I had discovered on the bodies of the men had excited was now confirmed, and I was satisfied that this schooner had been a pirate or buccaneer of what nationality I could not yet divine. Methought Spanish from the costume of the first figure I had encountered. And I was also convinced by the brief glance I directed at the things in the cabin, particularly the wearing apparel, and the make and appearance of the firearms, that she must have been in this position for upwards of fifty years. The thought awed me greatly. Twenty years before I was born, those two men were sitting dead in the cabin. He on the deck was keeping his blind and silent lookout. 
he on the rocks, with his hands locked upon his knees, sat sunk in blank and frozen contemplation. Every cabin had its port, and there were ports in the vessel's side opposite. But on reflection, I considered that the cabin would be the warmer for their remaining closed, and so I came away and entered the great cabin afresh, bent on exploring the forward part. I must tell you that the mainmast, piercing the upper deck, came down close against the bulkhead that formed the forward wall of the cabin, and on approaching this partition, the daylight being broad enough now that the hatch lay open on top, I remarked a sliding door on the larboard side of the mast. I put my shoulder to it, and very easily ran it along its grooves, and then found myself in the way of a direct communication with all the fore portion of the schooner. The arrangement indeed was so odd that I suspected a piratical device in this uncommon method of opening out at will the whole range of deck. The air here was as vile as in the cabins, and I had to wait a bit. On entering, I discovered a little compartment with racks on either hand, filled with small arms. I afterwards counted a hundred and thirteen muskets, blunderbusses, and fusils, all of an antique kind, whilst the sides of the vessel were hung with pistols great and little, boarding-pikes, cutlasses, hangers, and other sorts of sword. This armory was a sight to set me walking very cautiously, for it was not likely that powder should be wanting in a ship thus equipped. And where was it stowed? There was another sliding door in the forward partition. It stood open, and I passed through it into what I immediately saw was the cook-house. I turned the lantern about, and discovered every convenience for dressing food. The furnaces were of brick, and the oven was a great one. Great, I mean, for the size of the vessel. There were pots, pans, and kettles in plenty, a dresser with drawers, dishes of tin and earthenware, a Dutch clock, in short, such an equipment of kitchen furniture as you would not expect to find in the galley of an Indiaman built to carry two or three hundred passengers. About half a cauldron of small coal lay heaped in a wooden angular fence fitted to the ship's side, for the sight of which I thanked God. I held the lantern to the furnace, and observed a crooked chimney rising to the deck and passing through it. The mouth, or head of it, was no doubt covered by the snow, for I had not noticed any such object in the survey I had taken of the vessel above. Strange, I thought, that these men should have frozen to death with the material in the ship for keeping a fire going. But then, my whole discovery I regarded as one of those secrets of the deep, which defy the utmost imagination and experience of man to explain them. Enough that here was a schooner which had been interred in a sepulchre of ice, as I might rationally conclude, for near half a century. That there were dead men in her, who looked to have been frozen to death, that she was apparently stored with miscellaneous booty, that she was a powerfully armed craft of her size, and had manifestly gone crowded with men. All this was plain, and I say it was enough for me. If she had papers, they were to be met with presently. Otherwise, conjecture would be mere imbecility in the face of those white and frost-bound countenances and iron-silent lips.
I thrust back another sliding door and entered the ship's forecastle. The ceiling, as I chose to call the upper deck, was lined with hammocks, and the floor was covered with chests, bedding, clothes, and I know not what else. The ringing of the wind on high did not disturb the stillness, and I cannot convey the impression produced on my mind by this extraordinary scene of confusion beheld amid the silence of that tomb-like interior. I stood in the doorway, not having the courage to venture further. For all I knew, many of those hammocks might be tenanted. For, as this kind of bed expresses by its curvature the rounded shape of the seaman, whether it be empty or not, so it is impossible by merely looking to know whether it is occupied or vacant. The dismalness of the prospect was, of course, vastly exaggerated by the feeble light of the candle which, swaying in my hand, flung a swarming of shadows upon the scene, through which the hammocks glimmered wan and melancholy. I came away in a fright, sliding the door to in my hurry, with a bang that fetched a groaning echo out of the hold. If this ship were haunted, the forecastle would be the abode of the spirits. Before I could make a fire, the chimney must be cleared. Among the furniture in the arms-room, were a number of spade-headed spears, the spade as wide as the length of a man's thumb, and about a foot long mounted on thin light wood. Armed with one of these weapons, the like of which is to be met with among certain South American tribes, I passed into the cabin to proceed on deck. But though I knew the two figures were there, the coming upon them afresh struck me with as much astonishment and alarm as if I had not seen them before. The man starting from the table confronted me on this entrance, and I stopped dead to that astounding living posture of terror, even recoiling, as though he were indeed alive and was jumping up from the table in his amazement at my apparition. The brilliance of the snow was very striking after the dusk of the interiors I had been penetrating. The glare seemed like a blaze of white sunshine. Yet it was the dazzle of ice, and nothing more, for the sun was hidden. The fairness of the morning had passed, the sky was lead-colored down to the ocean line, with a quantity of smoke-brown scud flying along it. The change had been rapid, as it always is hereabout. The wind screamed with a piercing, whistling sound through the frozen rigging, splitting in wails and bounding in a roar upon the adamantine peaks and rocks. The cracking of the ice was loud, continuous, and mighty startling, and these sounds, combined with the thundering of the sea and the fierce hissing of its rushing yeast, gave the weather the character of a storm, though as yet it was no more than a fresh gale. However, though it was frightful to be alone in this frozen vault, with no other society than that of the dead, not even a sea-fowl to put life into the scene, I could not but feel that, be my prospects what they might, for the moment I was safe. That is to say, I was immeasurably securer than ever I could have been in the boat, which, when I had emerged into this stormy sound and realized the sea that was running outside, I instantly thought of with a shudder. Had the rock, I mused, not fallen and liberated the boat, where should I be now? perhaps floating, a corpse fathoms deep under water, or, 
if alive, then flying before this gale into the south, ever widening the distance betwixt me and all chance of my deliverance, and every hour gauging more deeply the horrible cold of the pole. Indeed, I began to understand that I had been mercifully diverted from courting a hideous fate, and my spirits rose with the emotion of gratitude and hope that attends upon preservation. I speedily spied the chimney, which showed a head of two feet above the deck, and made short work of the snow that was frozen in it, as nothing could have been fitter to cut ice with than the spade-shaped weapon I carried. This done, I returned to the cook-room, and with a butcher's axe that hung against the bulkhead, I knocked away one of the boards that confined the coal, split it into small pieces, and in a short time had kindled a good fire. One does not need the experience of being cast away upon an iceberg to understand the comfort of a fire. I had a mind to be prodigal, and threw a good deal of coals into the furnace, and presently had a noble blaze. The heat was exquisite. I pulled a little bench, after the pattern of those on which the men sat in the cabin, to the fire, and, with outstretched legs and arms, thawed out of me the frost that had lain taut in my flesh ever since the wreck of the Laughing Mary. When I was thoroughly warm and comforted, I took the lantern and went aft to the steward's room, and brought thence a cheese, a ham, some biscuit, and one of the jars of spirits, all of which I carried to the cook-room and placed the whole of them in the oven. I was extremely hungry and thirsty, and the warmth and cheerfulness of the fire set me yearning for a hot meal. But how was I to make a bowl without fresh water? I went on deck and scratched up some snow, but the salt in it gave it a sickly taste, and I was not only certain it would spoil and make disgusting whatever I mixed it with or cooked in it, but it stood as a drink to disorder my stomach and bring on an illness. So, thought I to myself, there must be fresh water about. Casks enough in the hold, I dare say. But the hold was not to be entered and explored without labor and difficulty, and I was weary and famished, and in no temper for hard work. In all ships, it is the custom to carry one or more casks called scuttle-butts on deck, into which fresh water is pumped for the use of the crew. I stepped along, looking earnestly at the several shapes of guns, coils of rigging, hatchways, and the like, upon which the snow lay thick and solid, sometimes preserving the mold of the object it covered, sometimes distorting and exaggerating it into an unrecognizable outline but perceived nothing that answered to the shape of a cask. At last I came to the well in the head, passed the forecastle deck, and on looking down spied among other shapes three bulged and bulky forms. I seemed by instinct to know that these were the scuttle-butts, and went for the chopper with which I returned, and got into this hollow that was four or five feet deep. The snow had the hardness of iron. It took me a quarter of an hour of severe labor to make sure of the character of the bulky thing I wrought at, and then it proved to be a cask. Whatever might be its contents, it was not empty. But I was pretty nigh spent by the time I had knocked off the iron bands and beaten out the staves, enough to enable me to get at the frozen body within. There were three-quarters of a cask full, 
It was sparkling clear ice, and chipping off a piece and sucking it, I found it to be very sweet fresh water. Thus was my labor rewarded. I cut off as much as, when dissolved, would make a couple of gallons, but stayed a minute to regain my breath and take a view of this well or hollow before going aft. It was formed of the great open head timbers of the schooner, curving up to the stem, and by the forecastle deck ending like a cutty front. I scraped at this front and removed enough snow to exhibit a portion of a window. It was by this window, I suppose, that the forecastle was lighted. Out of this well forked the bowsprit, with the spritsail yard braced fore and aft. The whole fabric, close to, looked more like glass than at a distance, owing to the million crystalline sparkles of the ice-like snow that coated the structure from the vein at the masthead to the keel. Well, I clambered on to the forecastle deck and returned to the cook-room with my piece of ice, struck as I went along by the sudden comfortable quality of life the gushing of the black smoke out of the chimney put into the ship and how, indeed, it seemed to soften, as if by magic, the savage wildness and haggard austerity and gale-swept loneliness of the white rocks and peaks. It was extremely disagreeable and disconcerting to me to have to pass the ghastly occupants of the cabin every time I went in and out, and I made up my mind to get them on deck, when I felt equal to the work, and cover them up there. The slanting posture of the one was a sort of fierce rebuke. The sleeping attitude of the other was a dark and sullen enjoyment of silence. I never passed them without a quick beat of the heart and shortened breathing, and the more I looked at them, the keener became the superstitious alarm that they excited. The fire burned brightly, and its ruddy glow was as sweet as human companionship. I put the ice into a saucepan and set it upon the fire, and then, pulling the cheese and ham out of the oven, found them warm and thawed. On smelling the mouth of the jar, I discovered its contents to be brandy. Begin in note number one. I can give the reader no better idea of the cold of the latitudes in which the schooner had lain than by speaking of the brandy as being frozen. This may have happened through its having lost twenty or thirty percent of its strength. End of in note number one. Only about an inch deep of it was melted. I poured this into a pannikin and took a sup, and a finer drop of spirits I never swallowed in all my life. Its elegant perfume proved it amazingly choice and old. I fetched a lemon and some sugar and speedily prepared a small smoking bowl of punch. The ham cut readily. I fried a couple of stout rashers, and fell to the heartiest and most delicious repast I ever sat down to. At any time, there is something fragrant and appetizing in the smell of fried ham. Conceive, then, the relish that the appetite of a starved, half-frozen, shipwrecked man would find in it. The cheese was extremely good, and it was as sound as if it had been made a week ago. Indeed, the preservative values of the coal struck me with astonishment. Here I was, making a fine meal off stores, which in all probability had lain in this ship fifty years, and they ate as choicely as like food of similar quality ashore. 
Possibly, some of these days, science may devise a means for keeping the stores of a ship frozen, which would be as great a blessing as could befall the mariner, and a sure remedy for the scurvy, for then as much fresh meat might be carried as salt, besides other articles of a perishable kind. End of chapter 11